And like Eric said, we've been spending the last few weeks in the book of Colossians just to take some time to, to learn and consider what it means uh, to follow Christ. And so, again, we're continuing in Colossians 3. If you'll remember, uh, a number of years ago, there was a movie called Life is a House. Uh, if you remember, Kevin Klein plays uh, father. He's dying of cancer, and his dying wish is that uh, he can build a house with his son, uh, played by Hayden Christensen of Star Wars fame, um, or infamy, depending upon your point of view. But uh, that, but he plays Sam, the son, um, and he asks his dad at one point um, as they're building the house, he says, how do you become something that you're not? And Kevin Klein uh, kneels down in front of him, gets eye to eye with him and says, you know, the great thing is that change can be so constant that you don't feel the difference until there is one. It can be so slow that you don't even notice that your life is better or worse until it is. Or it can just blow you away and make you something different in an instant. It happened to me, he says. And then he says, sweetly and famously, build this house with me. Now we hear that and we say, yes, I want that. I want, I want to be different. I want to experience that kind of change. But Kevin Klein says that this is the kind of change that happens to us. And if we consider great characters of literature, uh, great characters of cinema, like Han Solo, um, <laughs> you'll agree. <laughs> okay, did, did you see the new Star Wars? Hands up if you saw the new Star Wars. Hands up if you know what Star Wars is. I have to ask that because Brandon doesn't know what Star Wars is. So, um, but Han Solo, sorry, Brandon's lead, uh, Brandon Barker here, lead pastor at uh, Sojourn Han Solo. <laughs> He's right over there. <laughs> um, anyway, back to, back to Han. Um, do you remember what he says to the new rebels? He says to the new rebels, he says, I used to think that it was all mumbo jumbo. The notion of a magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. But it's true. The Force, the Jedi, all of it, it's all true. Now how can he say that? How can he say that? Because he has seen that larger world. He's seen incredible worlds, incredible greatness, desperate evil. He's seen the impossible come to pass. He's seen great warriors and awful tyrants, and he's seen great love and great sacrifice and uncertainty. And he's experienced terrible loss and terrible pain, and yet incredible victory over terrible evil. He now sees life very differently than he used to. It puts in grand perspective to all of his worry, his terror, his pain, his joy, his happiness, it's all framed in this larger world that he's experienced. He's seen it all and it has changed him forever. And now in a real way, he can face anything with confidence. Paul is saying something very similar here. He's saying that it is Christians who can live like that because they have seen the larger world, the larger reality. And so Paul says if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is asking us to do something. He says it twice, that we're supposed to focus our attention on heaven. Seek the things that are above. Pursue those things. Other translations say, set your hearts, set your heart upon the things above. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on earthly things. So he makes this distinction here. We all have the capacity, everyone in this room, everyone alive, we have the capacity to set our minds, our hearts, and our focus on something. Each of us in this room is doing that on a daily basis. We are all after something. We're all pursuing something. And so Paul says, there are things on this earth that you could set your life on, that you could set your heart on, that you could set your focus on, that you could pursue. Don't. Instead, be focused, be oriented. Desire and pursue that which is in heaven, which is above. Now, I didn't didn't grow up in the church, but I usually, I can remember seeing people when I was younger as people who would talk about heaven. It, it was like I was walking up to a couple of kids talking about the Easter Bunny. Are there any kids in here right now? Okay, just didn't want to like ruin that for a bunch of people. <laughs> but seriously, but that said, <laughs> when, I would, when I would talk with someone who was talking about heaven, it just made me think, this is someone who is out of touch. This is someone who is caught up in fantasy. And maybe our culture would say that if your mind is set on heaven, you are in fantasy. That you're so out of touch that you will not be of much benefit in this world. Our culture might even say that to think of the existence of heaven or hell is unhelpful and even hurtful. Because it keeps us from living for the good of this world. But Paul says, oh, on the contrary. The people who are the most oriented towards heaven, they're going to be the greatest good here on earth. Paul is going to say that it's only those who have set their minds on heaven. These are the kinds of people that can throw off greed and live with compassion. These are the kinds of people who can throw off lying and exercise patience. They can throw off raging anger and live with humility. They're going to be the best kind of friends. They're going to be the best kind of employees, the best kind of citizens, the best kind of families, spouses, parents. He's saying that in this heavenly orientation that we can be captivated and that we can find the greatest, fullest reality where we are changed and we can face anything. Okay, but what does it mean to set our minds on heaven to seek the things that are above. Does it mean that we're just supposed to think about the great stuff that we're going to have when we get to heaven? Like the food is going to be amazing. Let's hold on to that. (laughs) Or it's going to be, or the music, oh my gosh, the best Spotify. You know when you hit that good Spotify and you're like, it's going to be a good Friday night. (laughs) Or we're totally going to be able to fly. Do you know that? Think about that. Oh, are you there with me? No. Is it, is it that we need? I'm so sorry. <laughs> but does this mean that we're just supposed to live here in this earth with blinders 
on, earmuffs on, and just thinking about daydream, daydreaming about what it's going to be like in heaven. No, Paul, but Paul is going to tell us. If thinking and setting our mind on the things above is how we can be changed, how we can pursue deep life in living, how do we do it? Paul says that we can have this and we can live like this, but we have to know something and we have to believe something. So before we can feel anything or do anything, we have to think. A lot of the times when we talk about like, yeah, I think I know that, but I don't know that. That's good. This is the launching pad to get to here. So it's good that we think. We need to engage our minds. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. In other words, since, because, because you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Set your minds on the things that are above because you've died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. See, the reason you can seek these things is because something has happened. The reason we can set our minds on this is because something has occurred. And this is where we run into a huge piece of Paul's teaching. What is he talking about? In order to be a Christian and to live with this heaven-focused, heart-focused, head-soul-focused living, we have to know and believe that we have already died with Christ and that we have already been raised with Christ. And this is what we must believe. We cannot carry out this kind of life until we know something has already happened to us. He's saying that through dying with Christ and being raised with Christ, the core of what it means to be a Christian is not that we're just admirers of Christ or that we're just lovers of Christ or just listeners of Christ or obeyers of Christ, but that we are in Christ. Our lives are are hidden, held inside, covered by Christ. We are united to him in every single way. So what does it mean to be in Christ? It means simply this, that all that he has done, he has shared with us, and it's like we did it too. When we put our trust in Jesus, it's as if when he was nailed to that cross, when he was put in that tomb, when he was raised from the dead to new life, so were we. It's as if through Christ, God sees us as free from the shame and guilt of our sin. Now Paul has already mentioned it before, and he's going to to again here in a moment, and I want want you to catch this. This is very important. At the core of our sin was us putting ourselves in the place of God, in the throne, where only he belonged. But the core of salvation is that when God, is that God put himself on the cross, the place where we most belonged, the place where we were most meant to be, and he undid what was done. Paul is saying that has already happened. You died and you were raised. Paul says that when we seek, set our minds, set our hearts on the things that are above, we're actually setting our minds on a person and a reality. Look at verse one. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. A king's right hand, and this is important, was the place of greatest honor and intimacy. Those at the right hand of a king, they knew the king, they could talk with the king, 
They could hear from the king. They had the attention of the king. They had the favor of the king. And to sit at someone's right hand meant that you were on the same level. So why is it significant that in Christ we've been raised? Because it means that God sees you and considers you as if you lived the life the Son had lived. And if you, as if you were as holy and blameless and pleasing and lovable as Jesus himself. And now the Father who is overwhelmed with pleasure for the Son is overwhelmed with pleasure for you in Christ. And in order for us to live in joy, freedom, and courage, we have to open ourselves to the joy that in Christ, this is how God sees us. And even though we continue to sin, we are regarded miraculously as if we never did. Now maybe we'll have some objections. I know that we will. I read that and I'm like, uh, point of order, like I have an objection. Maybe you know something about yourself and think that it bars God's love for you. No, because I still struggle here, God cannot take pleasure in me right now. No, because I have, I have kept away from him for so many years, there's so, a penance that I need to offer for him to then be pleased. No, I have to live like this, pray like this, treat other people like this, work like this, and I don't do that, so I don't have the pleasure of God yet. Do you know what you're setting your heart on your, and your mind at that moment on? You. It's all about you in that moment. No, no, no. I cannot be acceptable to God because of what I've done. No, in Christ you are acceptable because of what he has done. In the essence of this gospel reality, if the essence of this gospel reality gets old or boring, then we, we can know for sure that we have set our mind on earthly things. Yeah, 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 gospel, sure. What do I need to do? No, you've already missed it. You've already missed it. Look at what he's done, and then we'll talk about what we need to do. We can't move on until we get that. So, Jordan, this is the truth upon which our church, our parishes, our very lives stands or falls. When we understand that, when we come and we open ourselves to the joy of the gospel, we would be better equipped to set our minds on him. So, what does that mean practically? What does that mean practically? It means that we think about Christ himself who is our life. To set our mind on something is to consider it our life. This is why I'm alive. This is why I'm here. This is of ultimate importance. So we marvel. We practically, we sit and think about what Christ has done, who we are in Christ, and we marvel at the reality that Jesus is at the right hand of God in a real way, so are we. We remember that he died, that we died in Christ, and that we're raised in Christ. And when we read the words, your life is hidden with Christ and God, we remember again that everything that is true of Christ is true of us. Not because we're doing it, but because he did it. 
everything that God has given him, he has given to us also. And we relish it. We rejoice over it. We talk about how wonderful it is. We consider all of the implications. We think about it. We talk about it with one another. We reflect upon it. We remind one another whenever we can. And when our sin is raging and our anxiety tears into us and we are drawn to look at ourselves and what is going to make us unlovable to God, we remember that what Christ has done has actually secured the Father's love for us. And that's what it means to set your minds on the things above. Mull over and enjoy and revel in the reality that Jesus was raised and so are we. That he has crowned you with glory and honor. The same glory and honor of Christ because of Christ. And it's this reality of being in Christ that's going to give us the power and the desire to carry out the rest. Paul is going to tell us how we continue to become who we already are in Christ. So, how do we live in Christ with our minds set on what is above, set on him where Christ is? Paul says there are two things that we can do, two things that we ought to do. One is a negative, the other is a positive. And he starts with the negative. Let's pick up in verse five. Let's read a little bit of this, even though the, I think the whole portion of 5 through 11 will be up there. Let's read just the first few verses. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So Paul says, because we have died and been raised, we should put to death what has already been defeated in Christ. The words put to death here are literal. They are literal. It, the words put to death mean to slay, to kill, also to wear out or to deprive. So part of us being heavenly minded and changed in Christ is to attack, to go on the offensive, to snuff out the earthly things that remain. And the reason we can do that is because Christ delivered a death blow to sin on the cross. He was the ultimate killer of sin, and as we kill sin, we join him in the work that he is the best at. So we follow in his work by doing that. And then he lists these things, Paul lists these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then in verse 8, putting away these things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and don't lie. Now what I'm going to submit to you is two things. I may be wrong, but I'm going to submit to you two things. First, that while Paul, in this first part, with sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, he has listed five things. But I think he's just talking about one thing in five shades. Even though we may read them as varied, together they speak of desires that have escalated to greed, a pulsating want and need that does not give up and does not end. So think about it. Sexual immorality... He calls, this, he, he calls this lineup, he terms it as all of it is idolatry. Not just covetousness, all of it. All of it, idolatry. Because idolatry is placing your life, your heart, your mind on anything that isn't God. 
And Paul says that God's holy anger and wrath has its crosshairs right here in idolatry. So think about it. Sexual immorality is placing my worth, my significance, my security in my sexual pleasure and freedom rather than God. Impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness is placing my worth and significance and security in what unholy cravings rule my life rather than in God. So that's the first thing I want to submit is that this is one thing we're talking about that he's mentioning in these first verses. But here's the second thing. The list that Paul tells us to put away, that secondary verse, anger, wrath, malice, has to do with our reactions when we don't get those things that we are idolizing. Do you see what he's saying? He is saying that if we place our worth in anything that isn't God, when we don't get that thing or that feeling or that recognition, that we will turn on people and God and tear them to shreds. Idolatry undoes relationship because it's all about me. It's all about self. For example, if we place our worth in our spouse's view of us, when they don't love us the way that we need to be loved or they don't see us as intelligent, wonderful, the way that we need them to see us, we will attack them. We'll pour out anger on them. We'll pour out punishment on them. We'll tear them apart with our words. We'll lie to them. And when they can't meet our needs, we will ultimately fall into despair and anger at them or despair, despair and self-hatred at us. Now here's something that's crucial. Paul says, he says, put to death these things, put away these things. So one thing we're supposed to kill and one thing we're supposed to set aside. And this is very important. Very important. It means because he says kill these things and put these aside, he wants the crucial part to be in that beginning. If we don't kill idols, then what we will result to, what we'll downshift into is just putting off I need, to be stop, I need to stop being mad at people. I need to stop lying. We'll make that the thing that we pursue to kill. Just don't lie, just don't lie, just don't lie, just don't lie. But we're not getting at the root. We're not getting at the root. We would be addressing symptoms and not the disease. So here's what we need to do. We need to first identify our idols. This is just practical. We need to identify our idols so that we can fight them with the truth of Christ and begin to kill them. We should find out what we're functionally setting our hearts and lives upon. And to find this out, we can ask a few just diagnostic questions. I have four. Number one, what if you lost it would make you feel like your life was gone. Number two, for what do you find yourself most consistently striving? What drives you? What are you after? Can you look at your life and consider for a moment, what am I most consistently chasing down that I haven't gotten yet? And I'm still chasing it. What's driving you into life? Number three, what things, situations, circumstances, anything, what makes you angry 
what makes you sad and what makes you scared. Whenever we can identify, it's not just, well, I'm angry because I'm angry. No, that's not the reason. You're not angry just because you're angry. You're angry because you're losing something or something has been withheld from you or something is being kept from you and you will fight with your anger to get it. What makes you sad? What just, what just completely destroys you and says, it's just it's not worth it anymore? Or what, are you, what risk are you managing through your fear? Do not let this happen. I won't be able to live if this happens. In what sense, the final one, what do you sense you're fighting for in your anger? What are you fighting for in your sadness? What are you fighting for in your fear? What are you after? It's not just to stop lying. If it is, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But why do you lie? I can tell you that the reason that I lie is because I want someone to accept me or think something about me that, is, that maybe isn't true. I want acceptance. And that's just even, even just that is topsoil. Like there's something underneath that. But we've got to get to the root. If we just make our pursuit to stop lying and to not be mad, we're not going to change. We are not going to change. Nearly, really, we really need to think about these things, talk with our friends about them. What do you see? What do you see? What do you think I'm after in my functional living? Not just what I say, but what I actually do. But I don't want you to start answering these right away. I don't want you to start, okay, uh, number one. Like, just like write them down and, and lock back in because we're going to keep talking. But, but the answers will reveal where we are setting our lives and hearts. It will reveal what has become your life and what is currently running your life. So when you answer those questions, here's a small but practical next step. When you get, in, when you get underneath the why am I doing this? Why am I angry? Why am I sad? Why am I scared? When you get to some more answers, you can look at whatever that thing is and you can say to it, I'm not kidding, you can say to it, you are not my life. Christ is my life. You are not my joy. Christ is my joy. You're not my fulfillment. You're not my security. You're not my, you're not my future. You're not my worth. Christ is all of those things. Christ is all. There's a reason that Paul wants us to see the totality of Christ so that we won't go running anywhere else and nothing else will do but him. We're not, our identity is not primarily Jew or Greek, American or Russian. It's not our upbringing. It's not our pedigree. It is Christ. He is all. And then after saying to this thing, you are not my life, to turn to Christ and say, oh, but you are. Christ, you are all. You are everything. Let nothing take my eyes off of you. We kill idols and lies with overwhelming truth. Here's the lie. Christ is all. And it breaks underneath that totality. This is repentance. Okay, so that's the negative. That's what we're called to put to death. And let's talk about the positive, and we'll end here. What we're called to bring to life. So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Sojourn, love, if we are a body, we are truly a body and a family, love is like ligaments. It holds us together and gives us movement and life. Without it, we're, we're just a pile. We're just a pile of members, a pile of body parts. Love binds us together and holds us together. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell with you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And when Paul says put on, the words most directly translate to clothe yourself, to put on, to literally put something on. But before he describes the clothes, he reminds us again of our identity in Christ. Christ was the ultimate enjoyer of God. He was the ultimate killer of sin and he was the ultimate enjoyer of God. And now, remember, you are chosen by God, set aside by God, and loved by God. Now here's the crazy part again, the unbelievable part. Because we are in Christ, God is not asking us to prove our worth through these things. No, Paul is telling us again that that in Christ, these things are already, God is already considering that these things are true of us. He's already seeing us as compassionate. He's already seeing us as humble. He's already seeing us as meek, as patient. He's regarding us as if we had already lived that way because we're clothed in Christ, hid in him, the ultimate lover and enjoyer of God, the Father. He's saying you're already these things, so live them out. Okay, how? I love that his instruction is both so communal but so simple. There's a ton to go through here in the last five verses, but let's just, let's just zero in on just a few things. Let's talk about how we can fight for Christ to come alive in our hearts so that we can enjoy him. Just as an aside before we get into this, in order to grow and change, we have to do both of these. We have to kill idols and enjoy Christ. We can't do one without the other. If we only kill, if we only make that our mission, then we will become always analyzing and never enjoying. We will become always working towards but never resting in. And in this, we may feel more justified in our own victory while functionally, like we're killing our sin, we're doing our job, but while functionally rejecting the grace of God to say, this is what I'm doing. This is my personal sanctification that I am taking complete and total responsibility for. And if we only try to enjoy Jesus while ignoring our idolatry, then our enjoyment of what Christ has done will be short-lived and half-hearted. We will sit in this where we're still enjoying our idols, but we're in trying to enjoy Jesus, and it's just going to cause this like schizophrenia. So how do we live out our compassion, our humility, our patience practically? This is no, by no means an exhaustive list, but here are just four things to just kind of get us started. Number one, if you're not in a parish, get in one. 
all that Paul asks of us here, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, teaching one another, living in peace and in love, you can't do that alone. Don't do it alone. Don't try to do it alone. You can't do it alone. Get into a parish. Get into community. Number two, if you're already in a parish, is there someone in your parish who's going through something difficult, really difficult? What if you, regardless of how capable you feel, came alongside of them, listened to them, built a friendship with them, and helped them bear the weight that they're currently bearing? In doing so, you will know more about the one who bears your burdens. You will display his goodness and you will enjoy his goodness and you will be changed. Number three, when you come to the Sunday gathering, sing. Sing. The truth that is sung through the hymns as a proclamation of God and his goodness. You're not just appeasing God or just enjoying him for yourself. When you sing, those around you can hear you. And faith comes through the hearing of the word of Christ. And through singing, we encourage each other's growth in Christ and joy in Christ. And don't worry, don't worry if you had a bad voice. Like a friend of mine said, if you have a bad voice, like, make God pay for it. Like, just sing your heart out. Seriously. <laughs> Brandon knows something about that. Um, sorry. I didn't write it down. It just came out of my heart. <laughs> I, um, but think about that. Think when we're standing here and we're just sort of like observing that as we engage through song, that our hearts are engaged and we are helping to engage other people's hearts to stand next to someone and watch them enjoy Jesus just pulls us in. There's this centripetal force that just pulls all of us in to enjoy him and know him and proclaim him and then enjoy him through the proclamation and through setting our minds on the words that are, that are on the screen. All of that together. And number four, Paul mentions three times in these last verses to be thankful, that we should be thankful for Christ and how he's made us alive, that we should, be, we should have thankfulness in our hearts in light of all his truth, that we should give thanks to the Father through Christ. Paul says that being thankful changes us, that it helps us enjoy Jesus. And not just generally thankful, like, oh, I'm blessed. No, why? To look at Christ and say, thank you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for, for who you've made me now. Let's, let's be thankful together. Now, the richness but simplicity of Paul's instruction reminds me of this, of this old hymn, For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of sterling drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Our motivation for doing these things. We bear burdens because Christ bore ours. We forgive one another because Christ forgave us. The reason that we can put off sin is because he put it on. The reason we can put on righteousness is because we're already robed in his. 
He was the ultimate putter offer and putter honor that ever lived. And as we live these things out, the Lord by his grace will grow our hearts for compassion and our capacity and forgiveness and the depth of love and our striving for the peace of Christ. And we will be convinced more and more together as a family of Christ. And we will see that larger world and and we will be of great earthly good to our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, and one another, our city. And one day, as Paul said, when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. We will see him face to face. And in seeing him, the Father will make what is already true completely true. And the change will be total. And we will be made like him and enjoy him and one another for all time. Sounds wonderful. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. And Father, we need you. Lord, the things that our hearts and minds are tempted to set upon our jobs, our relationships, our respect, our status, our career trajectory, our health, our income, our marriages, our children. Who respects us? Our intelligence, our capacity, our our comparison to one another. Lord, we take we take every opportunity, our heart, our, our frail heart takes every opportunity to latch onto and lock into things that seem like they are going to change us and give us Lord, what we're so desperate to have. And yet you say here, you say here, lock into me. Father, may we be a people who rest in what you've done. May we be a people who rest in the finished work of Christ, not trying to rest in our ongoing work to please you. God, may we be marked as a people who take our idolatry seriously and put our crosshairs on it like you did on our sins. Or we know that we're, we know that this is how we should live if this is what, but only because it's what you've done. What have you done? You have destroyed sin, so we want to join you in destroying sin, the sin that remains. And we look to you in your goodness and compassion and humility and patience and love and peace, and we want to put that on because you put it on. Would you grow us, Father, to the measure and stature and fullness of Christ? As we behold you, will you change us as you promise you will from one degree of glory to the next? God, we love you and we need you. We are desperate. Help us, help us to open ourselves to the joy of your gospel. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.